now I want to take a time to talk about um, my show sponsor, which is Live to Fight Design. Uh, if you checked out the episode with Sean Clemens, he's the owner of uh, Live to Fight Design. And uh, what he makes is uh, banners, fight banners for fighters and also gyms, fight gyms. And uh, I have a promo code with Live to Fight Design, which is Todd Atkins, my first name, T-O-D-D. Last name Atkins, A-T-K-I-N-S, all together. So if you use my promo code, you get $20 off your order. And, uh, yeah, you can uh, get a pretty good banner made for yourself. High quality and uh, ships them out pretty fast. So, you know, I appreciate him. Take He's the first guy who's taking interest in sponsoring this show. And uh, I'm proud to have someone who's involved in the fight game rather than someone who's not sponsoring the show. So check out live to fight design so live and then the number two so live to fight design on instagram that's where you could contact sean clemens if you have interest in purchasing a banner from him and if you use my promo code you get 20 dollars off the order so please support uh, live to fight design and hope you enjoy this episode All right, so it's Todd Atkins. I'm back with Miguel Adorati from the MMA Museum, MMA Museum Project, and MMA Museum Podcast. And you can find that YouTube at MMA Collector 74. Subscribe to it. Please support it. And as always, before we start our episodes here, I have a sponsor, Live to Fight Design. If you use my promo code, which is Todd Atkins, you can get $20 off your order. This is for uh, fight banners and gym banners. They do a great job. And uh, before we start, Miguel, kind of what we're going to talk about today is uh, Sheikh Tahnoon and uh, his, uh, you know, starting of the ADCC and also his involvement with Fight Island and really, you know, helping the UFC stay alive to some extent. So, you know, Miguel was with the ADCC for about seven years. And uh, so, Miguel, I kind of want to let you start with what you know of him and um, your background with the ADCC. Okay, I, I went to ADCC uh, in Abu Dhabi in 1999 uh, for the second tournament, and I grew to be one of the promoters and to be in charge of several of the tournaments that came in the future, including, you know, critical roles in Brazil and then obviously in New Jersey and, and uh, California. I was a promoter of record for the, those ADCCs, 2005, 2007, and then I left, so... Um, I was there, you could say I was there at the beginning. Um, it's not the true beginning. Sheikh uh, Taknoon is, we. I knew from the beginning, I was all, I always dealt with Guy Nevins. Guy Nevins was, a, 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 he worked with Sheikh and the Sheikh had people like, you know, that he assigned projects to kind of thing. And Guy had many projects and many things going on. Um, you know, at one point, I know that he was looking to help him buy a yacht. At one point, they were looking to invest in soccer players. So he had projects of that nature, and I think this grappling stuff was one of the projects once he got back to Abu Dhabi. He starts to grow into a role. How did he become involved in fights? Where did the passion come from? In California, he went to university in San Diego. I believe it was San Diego International University. I believe the story goes that the Sheik um, didn't reveal he was wealthy, but at the same time, I think he didn't live in the dorm. I think he lived in the hotel for four years or however many years he was there in a pretty nice Marriott. So 
you know, those are things you piece together. I don't know, but that's what I, I know. So he went to university there, became uh, a jujitsu student, cleaned the mats. Nobody understood what they were facing in terms of like he's one of the wealthiest people on the planet or has access to that. But he fell in love with jujitsu. So when he goes home in 1998, he does the first Abu Dhabi Invitational and uses connections to get some of the best grapplers in the world in a tournament. Kind of develops the rules of, you know, jujitsu with no gi and a couple of adaptations in the points. Because since the very beginning, he also has, he went to San Diego International University because he's being prepared for a life of governing in his country. His father was the president at this time. And now I think it's his brother who's the president and he is the head of the FBI. So his life was, he knew, and he knew all along he was destined for those roles and that it was serious. So jujitsu, I think, was a uh, distraction in the early days. And you get less and less time for your distractions when you lead a life like that. So I think at this point, he's become more of a figurehead. Of, uh, is this a good idea? Blessing, no blessing. And then people do. I think, you know, I don't think he's been to any of the Abu Dhabi tournaments outside of Abu Dhabi. So he didn't even have time to really dedicate to that now. But back then he did. Um, in 99, when we got there, um, he was doing interviews. It was the first year that there was real press there. In, in 98, the first year, I believe Brazilian press got there because of Sperry and uh, Henzo being involved. Um, but I was invited as a member of the international press for the 99 year. And when we got there, there were Japanese and European press people taking pictures and the Sheik was interviewed. Um, and uh, in that interview, I had the only exchange I ever had with him was I told him that I think I could pull off doing these rules. This was my second year, my second time seeing there. I told him that I think we could pull off these rules around my show at a, in a smaller level, but the rules could be used in the States. And he liked that idea. And he said he would help me. And that's the only words he ever said to me. I learned that it was always, he put me on guy. And when guy needed something, I worked, you know, we worked it out with guy. Guy had the signing authority. So that's my extent of contact with the Sheik. But I do know in 99 for, or 2000, for example, 2000 was the real explosion. From 99 to 2000 was the biggest talent jump that you could see. That's when they invited everybody and everybody already knew it was safe and the tournament was going on and it was legit and everybody wanted to show up. No questions. And, you know, in that year, when you I, I saw the Sheik, he was on the mats in the Abu Dhabi Combat Club rolling with Vitor Belfort in a white, you know, T-shirt, sweating, you know, just sitting there on the mats with him, hand, hands on. His passion. That's, yeah, the, this was 2000. So he was still a young man. He was already probably in government, but not in the advance. I think, like I said, he's the head of the FBI now, for lack of a better uh, comparison. So he, he had time, and, and he, but he was enjoying himself. And it wasn't even appropriate to be like, hey, you know, we need this for the event or this, that, or the other thing. You just go to guy. But just so I just got to observe him that. And I, I've seen I saw him rolling with people. Belfort was the one. Belfort spoke good English at the time all of a sudden. <laughs> and, you know, Belfort liked that role. So they were having fun with the, in that memory. You know what I mean? And I think that's what grappling ultimately represent now 20 years later it still represents that in the sheik's head is that oh, those that was fun those were the fun days you know and uh that's you know the best i can tell you about the sheik in terms of uh what i think and what i saw
Now, what happened to Guy Nee Evans? Do you know? I'm sure he's still working there. <clears throat> um, I think there were family ties there. I think, you know, uh, Guy's uh, father worked for the Sheik's father. And, you know, the, the we're talking about the rulers of Abu Dhabi. So they also had homes in London and, and guys from England. So I think his responsibilities were far more than this. And that he's still there. And that this is something that even he may no longer be involved with because he's doing other things. You know, and, and like I said, he loves it. He was at, guy he was actually competing in the first one, the 1998 roster, you know. So he rolled, he went to the jiu-jitsu classes in San Diego, you know. So he, he liked it. He had a passion for it. And he was also, you know, doing his job. And he did it extremely well for a while. Which, so the Sheik, I'm sure, kept him, you know. And they were like, they seem to be friends too. I don't know, you know, I can't even judge. It's like, did he have an irreplaceable position? In my opinion, a British guy around a VIP like that in a foreign country, a lot of people around the VIP from that country would like to have guys' connection with him. So I always thought, like I said, I get to see a very uh, light version of them because they're happy doing this. This is their passion and fun. So you said he's still there? Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's still living in Abu Dhabi. That's interesting. So, you know, as we're kind of doing like a historical of, you know, Sheikh Taknoon and his involvement with Abu Dhabi, maybe talk about, because you, I want to know, like, where did they have you stay when you were there? Do you remember that stuff? Like, sure. Were the accommodations really nice or how was it? In 1998, I'm sure the first year was the most expensive show they did. And it was because I think that um, it was the, the first show. You learn lessons. Um, you know, they when you're as wealthy as some of those people are, you know, giving fighters that are making a couple hundred bucks for a fight, you know, $10,000 or something like that, to them doesn't mean that much, but... Um, you know, they had people's attention like that from the very beginning, that they it was a tournament, you went, you got paid, and it was like a VIP type of thing. So 1998, I think, was the most expensive year. 99, I went, and everything was pretty deluxe. You know, you, you had a four-star, not a five-star pristine hotel, but a good, good four-star hotel, which used to be the top notch anyway, right? And everybody stayed there, the fighters. Everybody got paired off. It was my responsibility at some some of the shows to put people in with their roommates and stuff like that and then deal with the consequences of that. You know, some people, it's a no-brainer, and then it's like you get down to like... But, yeah, so the, the hotels were, you know, full service, you know, hotels. You had no no issues there with anything necessary, mini bars. You know, you can get alcohol in the, in the hotel, but, you know the Westerners and the foreigners and stuff like that, that think, oh, it's dry there. Um, so the accommodations were very good. They, they scaled them down a little bit. Like, you know, like if the first night, the, the first time we were there in 99, they may have used a $350 a night hotel. And then the next year they went to a $250 a night hotel. So not noticeable and really in terms of, unless you know little things, you know what I mean? But they were trying to work it into a budget. They were, they knew that they were spending more money than they had to as well. 
And, you know, nobody likes to do that. So you can see that they started to try to uh, slim down their costs from, from, you know, early on. Yeah, they were probably spending way more money than they made. I mean, there was no money to be made. They didn't no, have no, this audience. Really, this yeah. really out of pocket. They, yeah. they can hand, you know, the Sheik has, I don't know what's his money and what's the government's money over there, but it seems to be like in a pool. And, you know, now that's become, you know, an investment fund on a world level and stuff like that. So they know what they're doing with their money. And I think he started playing with it, but then slowly uh, it starts to get handed off into people that are more employed at keeping a, a monetary fund going and trying to do it with this or whatever. I don't know exactly what the new arrangements are, but I think he's far removed from it, but I don't think he's paying for it out of pocket anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so what do you remember about like, because you know you had the matches, obviously. Everybody's talked about those, but what do you remember kind of about maybe the first couple of events, just looking back on it? Well, I'll answer a few questions that have been out there, you know, among the fans. If you're listening to this, then you probably have questions around the absolute tournament and around, you know, so let me tell you what I saw. And, and this or the idea that, you know, the Sheik picked the winners or, you know, really sometimes at times even comments of that level of ignorance and stuff. So now, if you think this guy spent that kind of money, he, first of all, he loves the sport and loves, and part of that has to be the rawness of it, the reality of it, right? So to want to script it is just not in the same story that I've been telling, right? So it doesn't make sense at, at the highest level. But if you, but he does have power in the country, and if he wanted something done in his country, he can manage it to get done. So that's his reputation. But it was so far removed from it. He wanted nothing more and for this to be as fair as possible, so they caught on on a world level. So in that respect, he was successful. At some point, he put the judging in, in the hands of people that were qualified to judge, people from jiu-jitsu, people from different walks of life. And now many of those judges from those very beginning are from Finland and, and, and Scandinavia because they had the most staying power. But they started to work on the judging and the making sure that it was fair was his, one of his top priorities from the beginning. And in that, he deserves respect and credit. There was never any real funny business of like, well, Henzo's his friend, so he wants Henzo to win. Absolutely not. I think it was more in that respect. And again, this is an assumption too, but in that respect, they're, they're friends. You know, the, that that's a, I, you know, quantify that, but I think he wanted to, you know, test his friend. So he got Henzo the toughest he could when, when it was appropriate. Mm -hmm. Just to show him, you know, just to rib him a little bit, you know. That's my take on it. That's how I see that. I don't think it was like, well, Henzo, come on in and you'll, we'll make you the winner and stuff like that. That's absolutely, it, it wouldn't have appealed to somebody like in his position. And, and then, the, like, how do you get into the absolute? I'll, this is a good example of Sheik Tagnoon uh, creating a system that was visibly fair. And nobody's ever publicized how you get into the absolute. But it really is a scramble on the last day of the show because at the last day of the show, you've got the finals for the tournaments and then you've got the super fight. So now after all the tournaments conclude and the winners of those tournaments obviously are heavily favored in the super, in the uh, absolute, right? So now while the super fight is going on, you get the final applications for anybody who wants to be in the absolute. So the fighters have to come and tell us, a representative, me, 
Kid Peligro could be one. Guy would be another. You know, people running around, they would have to come and say, yes, I want to be in the absolute. We make a list. Everybody in the room. Sheik Tagnoon was not in the room. That's why I say I had no access to it. So at some point, if he wanted to have a, he watched the tournaments in Abu Dhabi. So if he wanted to have a vote, he was probably voting either with Guy or Kid Peligro on the phone. But he gave us a vote. He never said, I want this guy, this guy, and this guy in the absolute. And that, that was never what went on in any way, shape, or form. He gave us all votes, and it, it was very simple. It's like, all right, Todd Atkins applied. Can Todd Atkins win the absolute? Rate him possible one through ten. A five, a six. And you go around the room, you get eight or nine people. You know, Matt Hume voted. Um, I'm not sure which Japanese person voted. Maybe Manabu. Maybe um, uh, Kawasaki. Um, uh, there, you know, like I said, Kid Peligro. There were there. Were, everybody has a vote, and then you just add them up, and the top sixteen go in. And if people drop out, seventeen goes up, eighteen goes up. I watched it on paper, developed that way. It's chaotic because it's at the last minute, but there's no doubt that it was fair. It was never the will of one guy. So you know, if people said people had said that, and if people are still saying that. I want to firmly dispel that rumor because it that that there's nothing further from the truth. Yeah. Now, what are some other things besides the matches that maybe you think are important that people know about that doesn't get talked out about a lot? Well, you know, how controversial do you want to go? We we did the show in uh 2001 in the early part of it. And then sometime in August, we're told, hey, you know what? We're going to skip next year. And then September 9-11 happens. And after that, they started doing them every two years. And I think that, you know, without getting into too much conspiracy or 9-11, did they know or anything like that? Let's just say that I think at that point, that's a critical juncture. Remember, Sheikh Taknoon is, is a person that is predestined to be working in his country's government. His, his father is the president, and he's been trained his whole life for that. And that just made things a lot more serious, a lot quicker. So from there, I think you see him disengaging from this project more and more. Yeah, and 2001 was the last one he attended. I actually asked Mo that the other day. And that was in Abu Dhabi. He said he hasn't been to an Abu Dhabi event since 2001. Yeah, and I, and I think that those two things could be related. One, why, you know, it, it probably became harder for him to convince 100 fighters around the world again and everything, or maybe it became harder for him to assure there, because we were well-received, well-hosted. You know, there were no issues of, of, you know, of any nature. The fighters were happy in terms of be there. Everybody was on their best behavior, too, but nobody wanted to mess that up. So there was no, you know... So, but it might be harder after 9-11 for him to host, you know, especially because he does have a visible role in their world as well. So, but again, yeah, I, I, I think that whole world politics thing accelerated his move into the roles he's in now. And that's where we lost his hands-on, you know, love for the sport. He assigned it to Mo or, you know, however, get to Mo and Mo is from there, right? So he's similarly wealthy. He's probably handling some type of management fund for certain people, and the sheik probably has a high level, yay or nay, on everything that that they like because it's a structured society, and it's ultimately the sheik whose name is assigned to it is Sheikh Taknoon. Yeah. 
What do you know about Mo? Because I really I don't, don't really, know much I about him. Recall, I don't. I couldn't tell you if I met him and if he was one of the people that was assisting there. Because I'm not great with names and faces, but I don't. I don't think I recognize him. I think he came along after me, and I. I, I think you know. I don't think he knows me. But you said you think he's from that area. I, I didn't even know he was actually. He does have some of the features of. Uh, I I thought I saw him wearing wearing the. Uh, the, oh, uh, yeah, head, the head it's called a gutra gutra is what that's called. okay and his name is yeah. mo jazim which yeah 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 mo is muhammad so muhammad jazim that sounds plenty arabic to me maybe he's not from abu dhabi but he's got to be somebody put it this way i don't think he's from the fight world he didn't emerge he wasn't a fighter that was participating and then grew into that i i don't know yeah he's big into jujitsu too so yeah, and and that's that. But if you were a jujitsu person, that's not the fighting stuff that was going on with the early invitations in Abu Dhabi. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I I don't know him. I you know I know he's done a fantastic job. The show last the last show looked like the Super Bowl, and at the end of the day, um, it's a great sign of growth. It's great, but yeah, I I, I don't know. Maybe it's great. You know, it's good that he's there and, and we're not because it might have kept you know smaller, but it's it's gotten very big. Now, what do you know about his involvement with the UFC? Like people, I think your average fan, they see Fight Island. They haven't really looked behind the scenes of how that even came to pass. Um, you know, and obviously he had bought like what, 10% of the UFC or something like that. At some point during the Fertitta reign, they, they needed a cash influx and the, the Sheik bought 10%. Sheik Taknoon bought 10% of the UFC. And at that point, um, you know, they had more hands-on involvement. Um, I don't know exactly how that relationship ended, but I understand that it has ended. Hmm. And there, there are opportunities, you know, when especially, and I know that, you know, I don't want to digress too far, but especially when you see them backing Power Slam. You, you wonder why it isn't that they didn't dedicate support to something legitimate like the Abu Dhabi Grappling World Championships and that whole network. And as you can see in Mo's hands, it's turned into something you know profitable and 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 worldwide. With a little love and dedication, they could do they could have done that, but they were together, and for whatever reason, it didn't work out completely. But it wasn't. I don't think they threw stones at each other either. It was not worth it because I don't think Fight Island they wouldn't have built that or anything like that if Sheik Tagnun had been vehemently against it. So at some point, I he's 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 one of the frontline rulers of the country. So at some point, if if he wants it or doesn't want it, everybody below him wants to make sure that 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 his will is taken into account. So this deal wouldn't have happened if he wasn't okay with it. And they're making money. That's probably what what the situation is. All that money he spent on, you know. Paying bar tabs that you know Brazilians left and phone bills that Brazilians left, um, you know in Abu Dhabi and stuff like that. He was now getting back. So I, I but again, that's a lot of that is speculation. But I think I think it doesn't stray too far from the truth. You wouldn't do it in Abu Dhabi if the sheik had said no. Those guys double crossed me on a deal. I don't want to deal with them. That that didn't happen, but it did end. Now that cash influx was that had they not got that. How would that have worked out? I mean, his his contribution 
How important was that to keeping this going, you think? Yeah, you know, now you're asking, you're, we're in a world of speculation. At the end of the day, you know, if Lorenzo and uh, Frank went to Tillman and said, I need $15 million, you know, the family's got it around. You know what I mean? So, but I understand, you know, it, much better to get a partner, a heavy hitting partner, um, a partner that could lead to benefits in many other ways, such as, for example, many years down the line, it developed into having an alternate venue where they can bring in fighters that they can no longer bring into the United States. So it's actually led to very, very positive businesses for the UFC. And in the terms of Abu Dhabi, I think one of their greater goals is to keep the country in general on the international, like, front line so they're involved in museums and they're involved in you know golf and they're involved in this and that because they want to show a wide array of range i think it's this is the at the end of the day too the abu dhabi combat club and everything is also part of a uh presentation package of the country itself that's why you know it's been run great because it got a lot of good attention from the high ups in the country and, uh, you know, that's led to benefits for the UFC. So that's the best I can tell you. Yeah, and it's still his show because I, I had asked Mo about that on, he was doing a live and I had asked him what his involvement was. He says it's still his show and he still supports it financially, but he just doesn't attend the events, you know. Yeah. Because I was like, you don't yeah. see him around. What's his involvement still? And he said, oh, he's still involved. It's just that. You know, he's not attending the events and he's too busy to, you know, just do anything. I, I, I know that we did the show in Sao Paulo was the first one outside of Abu Dhabi's 2003. And then we did 2005 in Los Angeles. And then we did 2007 in New Jersey. So the next three events were um, way out of uh, the same time zone. So it was like nine out, you know, it was a weird time when the events were running there. But at least for a couple of those, we wanted to get a live feed back to Abu Dhabi and, and he wanted to see the show live as it was going on as best he could. You know, by the end of that, I, I think, again, like I said, you get to the point where you're actually too busy with your real life to dedicate to the hobby. And I think that's where we kind of fell out of his immediate range. But yeah, I think I think he still sees them, you know, once they go down. He probably has somebody assigned, maybe Muhammad. I, there was an old guy there that was his IT guy for a long time named Muhammad. Maybe he's still there. He gets, you know, now they don't do DVDs, but hey, send me a file in my email of the highlights of the event. And he's, he watches it and, you know, he knows Gordon Ryan and, you know, that's the extent of, of his involvement now. Money, yeah. And again, he's the front line of the country. So like, Big money is going to be spent. It, it, yeah, he's got to approve it. Yeah, I was telling, I was asking him, I was like, can't you like do an interview with this guy or something just so people can see him? And he's like, there's, there's only like a less than 0% chance I could do it. That's what he said. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah you'll I never think, see him do it. Yeah, I think, you know, I wonder, I wonder if Joe Rogan called him if he would consider it because if he went on with a good presentation, that would be beneficial to yeah. a, an overall media drive. 
So, like, I wonder if that he would even rule that out. But it, it's the same because we're smaller. We don't have that kind of juice. It's the same thing as like, what if we wanted to interview John McCain over why he didn't like MMA? You never get in the door to do that interview. So it's the same thing. Those guys are government over there. He's got, he's worried about a lot more than this. And he doesn't want to look silly either. Right. Yeah. So, hey, who won the last tournament? Oh, shit. He doesn't remember. He, he doesn't need any of that. Yeah. Plus, Joe Rogan, you know, he's kind of, yeah, he's no, got a reputation he, for some things that aren't accepted. And, Muslim culture, you know. No, I understand, and he might he might decide to not do it. I remember Chimaev said I, I wouldn't do it because he smokes pot, you know. But at the end of yeah. the day, it is exactly the number one podcast for many years, you know. And if he decide, but that would be something he would have to make a decision to go on, and go on with a prepared script and a presentation, or or be be as ready as possible. I think he'd have fun doing it. I think it'd be an amazing podcast. Yeah, if Joe yeah, went there, I think maybe you could do it. Joe, Joe's the only one who has a chance, I think, yeah. because of name recognition. Because other than that, you're just going to get shut down. It's like this is this is too insignificant, you know, in his life at this point. Yeah, it would be interesting though. I think Joe would have to go there though. I don't see him coming to here. Joe's got it. the money. Joe Biden, you know, get you, know, you can even go first class, Joe. I'm no telling doubt. You. <laughs> I'm sure he could, you know, but I don't think he's hurting for, you know, uh, guests either. But I'm saying that, yeah, to just think he's going to come on a podcast to talk about this. I think now you're just you're talking about a guy whose date is the time of his day is is programmed, you know, it, and he ain't going to spend any of his whatever downtime for his kids or whatever. To come up, you know, kid, give us a half hour. Not happening. I understand, Mo. I understand. Who were some competitors during your time that stood out to you for for a certain reason, you know? In Abu Dhabi? Yeah, while you're with them. Oh, you know, um, in the early days, now I think it's a very grappling-heavy competition because most of the positions are filled by people who've qualified and people who've kept the record competing under their rules. And that's something that didn't happen at the very beginning of the stuff, mm -hmm. obviously. And, my, you know, like, for example, Mark Kerr's dominance in this sport. Mark Kerr's an MMA fighter. Mm -hmm. You know, Mark Kerr is one that I remember. You know, Mark Kerr didn't have a point scored against him until he lost to Arona. But um, Hoyler Gracie, you know, uh, Henzo Gracie, uh, that type of name, I don't know. You know, we may be in an in-between time where... They're not old enough to be legends yet, but they should be, you know. Those are the people that people should still be looking at, at and trying to see, you know, old competitions and things. Those would be the names, you know. Um, Marcelo Garcia, you know. Um, there's so many because, you know, and then, and then there are guys that you had personal exchanges with, you know. I remember a British guy that competed in the early days. A guy, his name was Dexter Casey, and uh, later on he came and fought an MMA fight in hook and shoot. So, um, yeah, you you have a lot. Of, I have a lot of memories of the actual events and stuff. And you know, things going crazy. Just to, you know, at some point, the Sheik was wanting to concentrate on a fight, so he's like, "All right, you know, shut the other mat down." So it's like, okay, 
So the other match shut down. Cameramen go on break, everything like that. The match the Sheik was interested in was like um, over. So he's like, all right, we can go start the other mat again. It's like, oh, it's not that easy, you know? It's like, but you can't be like, all right, yeah, we'll get to it. You know, you got to have some effort. You know, he wants to see that you're reacting as well. You don't want to, he doesn't want to be embarrassed. Like he told those guys to do something and they didn't do it because it isn't, you know, he's a cousin. So yeah, it was, it led to some chaos and interesting moments and things. But at the end of the day, we survived and the tapes were made. And that's, I think, you know, was the end goal. Let's talk a little bit about Kerr because I think I do that. That's an interesting topic because he was pretty dominant in the tournament. And I'd say he was kind of one of like the first wrestlers that was really dominant in that tournament. And obviously he, you know, became very famous as a fighter, but kind of maybe summarize, you know, Kerr and Abu Dhabi. I think Abu Dhabi, not MMA, is his greatest moment. You know, it was the moment where he, he was still scary. And then, you know, in MMA, nobody wanted to get hit by the guy. He, you know, when he started Abu Dhabi, he was still undefeated. Like, you know, need people's teeth down their throat. His punches looked heavy. He knew he looked like he had technique. And he was looking like that very, very fearsome dude. And when he comes to Abu Dhabi and wins it, because at the end of the day, that's really, he was kind of boring. And he knew from wrestling competition how to get through a grappling tournament mentally and everything real well. So he was suited to this. And he played a safe game, kind of boring, like I said. He played a safe game, but nobody could do anything with him. And the reputation he comes out of with is that he wins. So he went to another sport and he won there too. So this is this it was his high point, and then it was the signal that the wheels came off. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's an interesting thing to kind of end on. You know, Kerr was, you know, kind of like an enigma in a way. And, uh, you know, it was interesting how, like you were saying, you think that was his greatest achievement. That's a big thing to say, you know, because obviously he had success and pride in the UFC. But... Yeah, no, clearly Abu Dhabi was, was the run he had in Abu Dhabi at the beginning and then including his position in history where he handed the torch off to Ricardo Arona, another, you know, for lack of a better term, another broken hero from that era, you know? Um, but yeah, you had the best in the world competing at that point and taking it the most serious, more serious than many other competitions because it was Abu Dhabi. It was kind of like a magic moment in the early, the last three that were in Abu Dhabi, you had a hundred of the world-class competitors all there, very hungry. It was not like anything you've ever seen before. Now they're all jujitsu guys and they all know each other. And they've all, it's almost like the NBA where they've all played together since they were kids. You know what I mean? Now it's the same thing. They've come up in tournaments. They know each other from here, from you know, that dichotomy of throwing Mark Kerr in the mix and, you know, Tito Ortiz and you know, Ruben Asado from Japan and, and, the range of people that they offered at the very beginning, they were the first international show. Yeah. Yeah, they had all kinds of guys who, if you had a reputation, I think the UFC was kind of like that too. If you had a reputation early in the UFC days, like maybe just after Merowitz, early Zufa, like now you can, anybody can get in the UFC. You can have a handful of fights and 
No, no you can't I, I, not be good at anything really and get on Dan White's contender series. 19, yeah. In 1998, when Abu Dhabi started, and it's always kept a, a similar format, 16-man tournaments, single elimination, in five weight classes. So that's 80. The, you know, there's women in later years, and in the early years, they also did a Arab tournament because they knew the Arab competitors were a little further behind the world in jiu-jitsu, so they wanted them to have their own champions and their own stuff. So in one weekend, they employed more fighters than the UFC did in that year by a lot. Even if you just concentrate on the 80 guys that were the core guys, with those 80 guys coming there, they employed more fighters in the UFC in those years. Because the UFC would have done four or five shows with five or eight fights. Not, not five, but say five or six shows, six shows, eight fights, 48 fights. Da, da, da. You're right there. So this was, this was when they said Abu Dhabi is going down this month, it was important. And in the MMA world, like the early UFC couldn't afford to run against it. You know, all the fighters wanted to go there. So, it'd be, you know, now it fits into everybody's calendar and they work with the UFC and this, that, or the other thing. But in the, you can't understand how big it was in the early days unless you start taking that into perspective. A hundred fighters. You know, there were alternates there. A hundred fighters all in one weekend. The UFC's never done anything that big. Yeah. Yeah, and I do feel like it felt more international than it does now even because... They were taking guys who had reputations from these different countries. They weren't necessarily, they didn't have any grappling tournament decide who these people would be. You know, they had a lot of guys right. from Brazil, obviously, but they got guys like John Olav from, uh, I think, Scandinavia or whatever. He ended up. That's an interesting story. Yeah. Let me, let me, let me tell you that. This is, this is really fascinating. The year before John Olav shows up, if you look at it, I think. I'm not sure if it, I think it was, a, I, I remember one athlete's name. His name is Nico Malm. And this is something that, you know, is, is my respect to Nico Malm. He actually has a, a position in history here. But he was never even close to the level of anybody on that competition. This is a, a guy that trained in his gym, you know, in his garage or whatever, and had, I mean, this happened to us in MMA as well, guys that wind up, invited to do a fight where they're not qualified, you know? And so the very first person that showed up from Scandinavia was an unqualified fighter that got wiped out. And that arose the angst of John Olav. There, there's a, a black belt that was the first Swedish black belt named Ricard Anderson and then Joaquin Hansen. They were real fighters up there. And they all realized, you know, they, they needed... There was a pride in it that the first competitor from there was somebody that was kind of going to be made fun of in the future. So uh, that's where those guys came. And that's something, again, that doesn't happen anymore, where you have unqualified competition. You you got that every once in a while. The first year, um, there were a couple of internet. The first year, uh, MMA journalist and uh, convicted murderer mm -hmm. Rafael Torre competed. Yep. I don't want to put anyone down because at this point, 20, 25 years down the line, you know, everybody's certain level of toughness. We've already figured out Randy Couture is elite. And if you were training in your basement, 
you weren't that elite, but there were guys that were invited that were, you know, I have a 70 and old record from, you know, grappling in my, in my gym, in my dojo, in my basement, Ryan Apollinario in the first year is a name like that from those old days, which my respect to Ryan, I know Ryan was known in the early days, but then when he got to world level competition, it didn't work out as great for him. He never became a, you know, UFC fighter or anything like that. So it's just a blast from the past name, but that type of, thing will never happen again the competition will never be hurting for uh you know all right well i rec i know who that is so put him in there yeah you know but they also had guys who you know were very successful that probably wouldn't be in the abu dhabi now like mark robinson you remember mark robinson you know he's hugely yeah, I, successful I mean yeah, if you think if you think mark robinson today couldn't win a, a qualifier though you'd no. probably be wrong you know, and, and he, but he'd probably be have to go that route. And, you know, unless he had some type of resume, like, so like at this point, you know, if he won a gold medal wrestling or some type of, you know, Commonwealth games or something, I don't know what his resume was, but I, I know that from the early days, a guy like Mark Robinson, you know, you just get the picture of the tape and he's in, you know, I want to see that. And yeah, it, it, some of that went on in the early days. They, they made they made good choices too. Robinson was a fun competitor. He yeah. fought in the UFC. Um, yeah. He's a guy that I think got a lot of raw deals everywhere he went. He was South African and um, never got respect. Like he never. I don't remember him having like a handler or a friend that was there with him or anything like that. Just showed up alone to do the work in Abu Dhabi. I'm sure with UFC he had handlers and stuff, but. Um, I think yeah, Mark Mark Robinson's actually one of the good guys from those old, old early days. I think he got, I don't remember what the controversial story is, but there's a controversy around him in Abu Dhabi. I think he won one year, didn't he? He actually won the title. Yeah. But I think Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that it came down to a judge's decision that took him out and then somebody, you know, I think he was on the cusp of, of winning one and got some type of ill treatment, but I don't remember. But Mark Robinson from those early days is, yeah, I think that's a good example of a guy that they took a chance on and it, it turned out to be really good. Yeah. Well, Miguel, I think this is, a, you know, another great topic. You know, I want to thank you for taking time to do this one. And uh, I know we talked about the MMA Museum the last time. Uh, do you have any updates since the last one that we spoke about? Just you know, cruising right along. If you can give us a little love and support and share and like and subscribe, we're at MMA Collector 74 on YouTube, and uh, the Museum Podcast is there with interviews, and we've got some memorabilia, TV show-type delivery stuff that we do. Uh, a lot there for you to have fun with. All right, Miguel, so... You know, I appreciate your time on this subject. You know, I always have great information. And for everyone who supports this, you know, like I said, go to Miguel's, uh, you know, the MMA Collector, which Miguel's involved with, MMA Collector 74 YouTube. Subscribe to it. Support it. And until next episode, take care. As always, I want to thank people for taking the time to listen to these shows. And uh, please check out my YouTube channel, which is Todd Atkins Show. Please subscribe to that if you want to get the newest episodes uh, kind of on time. I usually release these episodes 
you know, here and there in the days after I do them. But if you want to see them, you know, that day, basically, you would uh, go to my YouTube channel and uh, just please subscribe. Uh, supports me and uh, share this podcast if you like it. Share it with some other people. And uh, as always, I'm going to keep putting out more episodes for you. And uh, until the next time, appreciate it. Take care. Thank you.